0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're discussing David Lynch's 1984 adaptation of Dune, the iconic sci-fi novel by Frank Herbert. Soon to be adapted into another big-budget blockbuster by Denis Villeneuve, Dune begins an epic saga set on the desert planet Arrakis, where warring factions compete to control a drug known as Spice. Starring Cal McLaughlin in the lead role as Paul Atreides, David Lynch's Dune was a notorious critical and commercial flop. And uh, we thought it'd be fun to take a look at this cult classic before the new version comes out later. And it is both a very interesting film in terms of viewing experience and its backstory, and also a movie which has instantaneously evaporated from Morgan's mind because, let's face it, it does not have a coherent narrative.
1: Yes, I don't know anything about Dune except that like it exists, you know. I've seen the trailer for the new one. I know the like general vibe of the mythology. I know it's based largely on sort of like Middle Eastern sort of like ideas and motifs, which is very controversial with the casting of the new film, which we'll get into when we talk about that movie. But like I don't know anything about the plot of this book, right? Like I have not read Dune. And so I was watching this movie and I basically watched it in 15 minute chunks because I was just like, this is incomprehensible to me. (laughs) I don't understand what's going on. (laughs) And I have to sort of pause it. And like do something else or like look on Twitter. I mean, my attention span, like everybody else's, has been shot by the past year. But this was particularly punishing because I was just like, literally, what's happening? Like, I don't know. And we watched, or I watched this a couple of weeks ago because we had planned to do this one a bit earlier. And then we changed our schedule to accommodate the Oscars. And as a result, I literally am like, there was a strange fat man who had pustules on his face like what did i imagine that like what is happening um so yeah we're it's gonna be an interesting conversation today i think (laughs) yeah it's like
0: i so this film has a gorgeous production design a fascinatingly chaotic origin story and i think one of the really great bonuses of this phenomenon which morgan has just described is that i don't feel like either of us have spoilers for the new dune Uh, (laughs) I've not read the book I've read kind of the start but many of my friends are big fans of Dune and I'm kind of generally familiar with the concept obviously the entire book series is extraordinarily popular but I think kind of the first volume is generally regarded to be the best one um it was published in 1965 and it was kind of a big hit during the psychedelic era you know it's a bit of a drug book explicitly and you know uh, subtextually as well <laughs> and it's sort of a combination of the central narrative as sort of a hero's journey arc based around the main character Paul Atreides but it also has this extremely elaborate extended cast of kind of rival groups and because the book was so successful obviously there was like a very big desire in Hollywood to make this into a film and indeed this is not the only adaptation like there was a tv series uh, starring James McAvoy prior to James McAvoy being really famous and obviously there's this new version which probably will quickly become the definitive version unless it's much worse than it looks (laughs) but basically the De Laurentiis family which is uh, an Italian Producer family led by Dino De Laurentiis, who have produced many massively successful Hollywood movies, they held the rights to this for a long time, and they were like really plugging away to try and get someone to do this. But before that, the really famous adaptation of Dune that never happened was by the director Alejandro Jodorowsky. Um, and there's like there's actually a really good documentary that's just about this film, um, called I think it's just called Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune. For those who don't know, Alejandro Jodorowsky is a Chilean filmmaker. Um, he's still alive, and he's made various kind of quite unusual avant-garde films. He's known for a movie called El Topo, which came out in 1970. And um, he's not who you would pick for anything approaching a mainstream blockbuster. He made weird films, but he in a way, was kind of a good fit for Dune because of the psychedelia angle. And due to the fact that it was the seventies, he was legitimately hired to make this movie. And the result was this, like, really bizarre saga where he put together this quite frankly, stunning cast, including Salvador Dali, Orson Wells, David Carradine, and Mick Jagger who were playing supporting <laughs> characters. So literally, Salvador Dali was going to be in this film. I think he also um, was involved in the production design in some way, but the production designers themselves were like a whole other thing. But also, Jodorowsky trained up his 12-year-old son to play the protagonist. So there was like two years of this teenage boy's life where he spent like six days a week learning martial arts and stuff to play this character. Because in the original canon of the books, there's like this really kind of elaborate martial arts warrior culture, which essentially David Lynch did not understand or care for. So he just like removed it from his version. But like just a very bizarre period for Jodorowsky's son. This film fell apart because despite having this all-star cast, and also it was going to have music by Pink Floyd, they spent something like 20% of their $10 million initial budget just on pre-production, which was just like hiring all these people and having like an amazing number of meetings about how great the film was going to be. Um, and this kind of resulted in loads of really fantastic concept art by uh, Dan O'Bannon, Chris Foss, and H.R. Giger and various others. H.R. Giger is basically the guy who created the entire aesthetic for the Alien franchise. And those two other guys were crucial in the production design for both Alien and Star Wars. So there was this group of kind of up and coming production designers who came up with all these incredible ideas to do with like sci-fi visual world building that ended up in this Hundreds and hundreds of pages long storyboard book, which was illustrated by the iconic French comic book artist Mebius. And this book became this sort of Hollywood Bible because the film didn't happen. Like, they didn't have enough budget. It fell apart. It was a fiasco that didn't exist, which is the reason why people are so fascinated by it. But this book, which was, I think it was a storyboard for something like a 10 to 14 hour long film, like, (laughs) it was not, there was no way that this film could have been made. But it just contained all this amazing imagery that then started popping up in other films over the next few years. So there's loads of stuff that happens in Star Wars that is clearly kind of either cribbing off that storyboard or like just the same work that the same artists were done and were trying to recycle in something that would actually get made. It also appears in the Alien franchise, in Flash Gordon, in the Fifth Element, in the Terminator franchise. It just became this like incredibly influential work that kind of wasn't known by the mainstream, which is why this Yodorowski's Dune documentary is so interesting. But that kind of brought us to the point where the De Laurentiis family were like, look, we need to actually make this film. So they hired Ridley Scott, (laughs) who tried and failed to adapt it. And then eventually they got round to David Lynch. And I had actually seen this film like many years ago as a teenager, but like kind of re-watching this film now I was really struck by the question of why the fuck would anyone hire David Lynch to make this movie because it's so inappropriate. And um I didn't quite grok like how early in his career this was. This was actually his third film. Before this, he'd made a razor head, which is still like one of his most famous works, and the Elephant Man, which are both a razorhead is a very weird movie. The Elephant Man is like a more conventional kind of biopic historical drama. Um as far as I recall, they're both in black and white. I mean, he was an art filmmaker, but he was nominated for many Oscars for The Elephant Man, so he, you know, people in Hollywood really liked him, and that was the point where George Lucas personally asked David Lynch to direct the third and final Star Wars trilogy movie, which is also, in retrospect, bonkers. And David Lynch just told him no, because he was like, I don't know why you're asking me this and I'm the wrong person to direct, which is correct. But unfortunately, he did not say that to the Dune people. He said, yes, please, of course, I'll direct Dune, despite never having, having heard of Dune and finding it actively difficult to read and understand the book. And I found this wonderful interview. It was from like the mid 80s when he was filming Dune in Mexico. And I'll post a link to it. It's from a magazine called Starlog, which I assume was um a sci-fi magazine. And it's just this very sweet, very tragic interview where he's kind of talking about like, oh, everyone finds it hard to get into the first 60 pages. But after that, it begins to work on you and kind of talking about how his wife had to like force him to read past the first 60 pages of Dune. But then, you know, he gets like really into it and he, you know, he started making this film and he's finding it difficult because he can tell it's going to be really long and he has had to redraft the script seven times and it's very difficult to tell the story in a PG setting. And also he wishes he could still shoot in black and white, but he's not allowed to. And it's just like... sweet summer child you can really see the disaster brewing
1: (laughs) well i found that interview totally fascinating because i i don't know very much about david lynch i have this was only the second movie of his i've seen i saw mulholland drive years ago and i don't remember it very well but he's obviously such an iconic cultural figure now we have a particular idea of him and just like the adjective lynchian even if you're not someone who's seen many of his movies like me like I know what that means. Like, he's just very influential. And as a personality is very distinctive. And it's always really interesting going back and reading, you know, criticism about somebody's films from earlier in their career or particularly interviews like this one before they really become an iconic figure like that because of course they're just people right
0: i mean honestly he feels really recognizable to me in this interview because like he's quite weird he's constantly going on off on tangents and he's just very gentle and naive which is kind of his persona
1: (laughs) it's not that he feels like a totally different person but Mm. he doesn't feel like he has a lot of power Oh, no. Uh Right. And like, he clearly has no idea what is about to happen on this production, which is that it's about to totally, you know, become uncontrollable. But some of the questions that he was being asked, the black and white thing in particular was interesting, because it felt to me less like he was saying, oh, I wish I could shoot this in black and white. And more that the interviewer kept asking about the black and white thing, because the first two films he'd made were in black and white. And he has not to my knowledge, made a film in black and white since then, but that obviously would be the thing that was associated with him at that time, right? Because that was what everybody knew of his work. And the colors in Dune are very, very bright and distinctive. And so you have the interviewer kind of trying to get him to say something that it seems like he doesn't actually quite agree with, although he does praise black and white cinematography. And... Yeah, like it's just a particular view of an artist at a time before you know anybody knew what he was going to go on to do. But again, the like naivete about the sort of process in terms of working with a big studio is very clear, and was it just didn't work? Even when he's like, he's sort of is, he's very critical about Blade Runner. In the yeah, interview. it was like this is
0: a lot of like candor. He's just like, oh, I didn't like Blade Runner at all. Admittedly, he was watching the non-director's cut from the- yes studio
1: (laughs) but it was very funny because now I mean a couple of directors whose like persona is to be really brash and honest might say something like that about a film that's just come out but for the most part you would never get someone being like yeah this movie that's really similar to the one that I'm making in terms of genre I thought it was terrible (laughs) and he's just like he doesn't seem mean about it he's just like oh yeah I just thought it was really bad but like mine's going to be great. I can't wait for you to see it. You're like, "Oh no, you've disowned this movie." <laughs> it's like, "No."
0: Oh. Yeah. So the film that eventually was released, he was not happy with it. He did not get final cut. It could have been like a 4-hour film, but they cut it down to like a more conventional feature length, it's like slightly over 2 hours. And I mean, it's it's not good. It's <laughs> the script no. is like unbelievably terrible. It's kind of it starts with this like long kind of explanation. I mean, initially it feels like it could be a somewhat shaky sort of hero's journey adventure, but the film doesn't really establish the personality of the main character. And it doesn't really have a handle on kind of the extremely complex world building at hand here, because it's meant to be this story about like this young man who you know, he's given this sort of messianic role within the narrative, which I think David Lynch actually exaggerated to a certain degree. He, like, made him more literally religious than he should have been, but, you know, it's this boy who turns out to be really special, like, he can do things that are usually only done by this kind of all-female sect, and then he travels off to this planet, Arrakis, and is kind of embroiled in this conflict involving the arch-enemies of his house, which is the Harkonnens, and then also kind of falls in with the local tribes that live on the planet and are sort of and he like falls in love with the princess and stuff but it's like it's this incredibly poorly handled romance where they basically kind of they meet like on the astral plane and then fall in love in their dreams and then the first time they meet they're like we've fallen in love but she's not got a personality and like I I mean no one has a personality no one has a personality it's a terrible romance but no one has a personality it's it's just yeah so like all the best parts in this movie are to do with kind of very beautiful or extreme or weird imagery and <laughs> you have like quite a few quite fun actors you've got like Brad Duriff in here and you've obviously got Cal McLaughlin in the lead role and it's so strange to see Cal McLaughlin do this because obviously he became this like long time Lynch collaborator. Like, I have seen several of Lynch's films and also all of Twin Peaks, including Twin Peaks The Return. And it's very clear why, like, Cal McLaughlin and David Lynch are simpatico, because they both have this sort of ability to have a gentle spirit, but they're also kind of interested in engaging with, like, very dark and upsetting and weird storytelling. And there is also a certain visual similarity between them, which is sometimes the case between like artists and muses. But like in this movie, you've got this sort of like bouffant-haired 1980s like boy band lad who turns into this like super soldier warrior. And you're just like, I don't understand what the narrative is meant to be here. But um, the villains are very effectively hateable, I think, including a truly impressive role by Sting.
1: Well, before we get to Sting, who does deserve some some serious consideration here, I've not seen Kyle MacLachlan in, in nearly as much stuff as you have because of the Twin Peaks thing, which I have not seen. But I've certainly seen him in stuff. I'm like, he's a great actor. He has one facial expression in this movie, which is, like, vacant. Occasionally slightly <laughs> perturbed. And it's really not his fault. Like, he, most of his performance comes in the form of, like, mumbled voiceover that's, like, not expository exactly. It's, like, his feelings, but it's mumbled and you can't really grasp what's going on. And the plot is essentially just Avatar or Dances with Wolves or, you know, whatever. It's the same thing, right? Like, he lands on this planet and is like, I'm going to master your special magical fighting technique better than anyone ever has and they're like oh my god he's the second coming and the movie's so stupid that it's impossible to get upset about it but it is quite absurd right <laughs> like he just literally zooms in from another planet and they're all like oh my god he's so special and it's so great and you're like okay and particularly given the fact that like the special thing he can do is normally a thing that only women can do i was like Oh right, the twentieth century. Like. Yeah,
0: one of the things that's sort of persistent in David Lynch's work is sexism.
1: <laughs>
0: but like, this was like a new one for me because the women in this film are just like, even though they have like this sort of like cool coven of like scary witches, the Benny Gesserit, The book begins with like the trial by pain scene, which is kind of comes in a bit later in the movie. But it's like they're so cool, and then the film kind of removes a lot of the stuff that seems like it'd be interesting about them and then like the mother character and the girlfriend are just like extremely limited even though the mother has amazing costumes like there's some really tremendous costume design in this but yeah there there's um there's a post on tour.com by Emmett Asher Perrin which we will link to in the show notes which is just like i it's it's actually a lot more harsh about the production design than me but this writer kind of points out that the production design, even though it's often very interesting and gorgeous and kind of looks cool and retro to our eyes, even that is like extremely incoherent in terms of world building, which sort of highlights the fact that David Lynch isn't a science fiction fan <laughs> because there's no real sense of kind of the like background of the visual world building, like the kind of origins of it. Like there are distinctive locations between where the different factions come from. But it's not kind of like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings where you can sort of feel the backstory and the lineage of where that design comes from. And it just kind of illustrates the fact that like he is kind of at sea with the volume of the source material. Like I don't think he's ever done another adaptation to my knowledge but like basically
1: well the elephant man was a play okay yeah the elephant man was a play but that's such a different it's very kind of it's a very
0: different situation. different situation but like it's kind of interesting to compare to like the way the studio system works now because obviously the studio system produces plenty of total fiascos but usually when a film that's a fiasco like this comes out it's because the studio has been interfering too much but in this case it's kind of like simultaneously the interview. they probably part of the problem is that they just cut out a bunch of scenes that explained the story and gave the characters more development but clearly even if we did have a four hour film it would still be bad because David Lynch doesn't like or appreciate sci-fi so <laughs> it's very wild that like the entire industry was like we we love David Lynch and you both had George Lucas and Dino De Laurentiis both knocking on his door being like I'm desperate to give you 15 million dollars to make a sci-fi film even though he has like no qualifications to do that and like I was kind of after the film I was sort of looking at this being like it almost feels like it's not a David Lynch film and I was racking my brains to try and think like literally what elements of his work do I recognize here and the only things that kind of came I came up with is like he has this real fascination with kind of physical decay and like unusual bodies and disability which in this film is just purely negative which I think is partly due to the source material, where you've got, like, this character, Baron Harkonnen, who is, like, this gay, sexual predator, like, pustule-covered guy who, like, flies around in a chair. Um, I think they're toning down that element for the new remake for obvious reasons. (laughs) But that is kind of in the general David Lynch zone, but, like, usually he's a bit less B-movie about it. But, like, overall, he has very clear themes in all of his work. Like, he loves Americana. He loves neo-noir storytelling. He is heavily influenced by soap operas, which is like the whole of Twin Peaks is very soap opera-ish. And basically he likes to set things in, present-day America and like even when you read this interview with him from when he was filming he literally like goes on a tangent halfway through about like his favorite eras of American history and he's like oh I love like the 50s and I'm not really interested in anything that happened after 1963 and that sort of thing which is very present in his in his work you know he did like a whole movie that's about Nick Cage and Laura Dern like going on a road trip and like Nick Cage is clearly inspired by like 1950s greasers and that sort of thing so it's like this was, this was not his zone. Like Someone should have had a conversation with him for five minutes, but clearly the De Laurentiis family saw that he'd been nominated for a bunch of Oscars and perhaps was young and malleable and also saw dollar signs and they were like, we're going to make Star Wars, but it's going to be mature and for adults. And that's definitely not what happened here because he failed well, to bring any kind of human element to this story.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was the most expensive Hollywood production ever up to that point, cost $50 million, which now sounds like nothing, but at the time was a huge amount of money. So I'm sure they were paying him a lot, which, you know, motivates everyone. Oh, of course. And also, I think Dino De Laurentiis in particular has a history of making sort of poor choices <laughs> In his hiring practices, I don't know all the specifics, but I know he has the he has control over the rights or he's dead now, but his family still has the rights, I believe, to the Hannibal franchise and he was personally in charge of that for a long time. And I know that a lot of those movies got stuck in sort of development hell for ages because he I think Silence of the Lambs particularly I'm totally free associating um so don't quote me on this but I'm pretty sure he wanted that to be like really pulpy and gross in a way that obviously the finished film isn't and there was a lot of it was difficult to get that movie made. He just generally had a, the reputation of being a not a very pleasant person. I mean, this
0: film is technically credited it is credited to Rafaela De Laurentiis Yeah. And she also loved to produce garbage. Like her biggest <laughs> films are Conan the Barbarian, like Dune, Conan the Destroyer, the Dragonheart franchise. You know, that is that's her vibe.
1: Yeah. So Obviously, hiring David Lynch for this is kind of the opposite problem, right? Like, he made two great movies. And so, in theory, it seems like that's a good idea to hire him to do, like, a, you know, interesting, classy version of Dune. But he was a bad fit for the source material. And then they chopped up his film and it didn't, you know, it didn't work. So even if the, I mean, I totally agree that whatever the four-hour cut was, I'm sure was also bad, but, like... They weren't willing to go to a, like a strange place with him. It, instead, it has to be this sort of like bizarre, yeah. bad which is thing
0: also what's happened with exists. the new film. Because, like, I mean, it was what happened with prior to him, Ridley Scott, for whom this is his comfort zone. Like, he'd made Alien and Blade Runner by that point, and is clearly a massive sci-fi aficionado. And he was just like, "I can't do this. It's too. It's like too grueling and too complicated." Yeah. And just like was like, "I'm out." And with the new version. It's like Denis Villeneuve, who just did you know, Blade Runner 2 and clearly likes science fiction and has plenty of experience making blockbusters. He was like, I can only do this as a two-parter. But what's happened with that is that we're going to get the first part of the two-parter, but they're not filming them back to back. Like He has to renegotiate based on the success of the first one to yeah. make film two, which is definitely risky and quite unusual at this point when every franchise has to be a fucking franchise. But um, I'm interested to see how that one pans out. <laughs>
1: I suspect it's gonna work out just fine for him because everyone's gonna be so fucking desperate to go see a big movie and in a it's movie theater. Full
0: of beautiful famous people.
1: Yeah, I think mean, that movie's gonna make an absolute fuckload of money. So I think he's gonna be fine. But uh, yeah, we should talk about the villains you mentioned. Yes. In this June.
0: The Harkonnen's a rare example of um, anti-redhead bigotry. I think
1: in this film. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting, like, I simultaneously found these parts the most sort of objectionable and unpleasant to watch and the most interesting. Yeah. Because something's happening. I right? mean,
0: this is, that, well, this is where kind of Lynch comes in, because it's like, I feel yeah. like they're far more mean-spirited than Lynch typically is, because it's, it's more kind of like, look at how disgusting these people are, whereas he's kind of not doing that in his other work like when he employs people with like disabilities and unusual bodies in his other work it's not kind of in a negative light it's like as artistic collaborators as part of his overall cast and in this it's just like look at baron harkonnen's like revolting it's just like okay wow but it is it is certainly compelling to watch and i'm also like when i was watching this i was like is this pg rated it doesn't seem like it could be (laughs)
1: When I read that interview we were mentioning and he was like, yeah, and you know, it has to be PG. So that's also complicated. I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) This movie was PG? I mean, I assume this is before PG-13 existed as a rating. Yeah. Because that's the only explanation I can come up with. But like, literally, there's like a device in his like, uh, underling's heart's where he can like pull out the plug and all their blood just comes out and he's like, ha ha ha, and then floats away. Like, that is not a PG device. <laughs> but uh yeah, there's a real uh, unpleasantness to the grotesqueness of that character. I mean, literally, there's these like pustules all over his face, which that Tor article that you mentioned earlier, which I found a bit funny because it definitely is.
0: It's someone who's very dedicated to Dune.
1: Yes. And I thought there were a lot of good points in it, but also the tone was like someone who just loves the book so much and is mad about the movie, which like, I mean, we've all been there, but it was a bit funny to me. But one of the points the author made, which I thought was definitely correct and was thinking about watching the movie was like the sort of AIDS connection um, that would have been very much on the minds of people. Yeah. Which I didn't consider at all. Yeah. I I wasn't thinking about the AIDS stuff so much, but more the just like homophobia of all of that. But He's totally correct that like the AIDS residence is present and disturbing that this sort of like predatory gay figure is like literally covered in pustules and is decaying in front of your eyes, which is pretty unpleasant. On the other hand. As I keep saying, like there is something undeniably compelling and watchable about all of those scenes, even if you're repulsed by them. Which is more than I can say for much of the rest of the movie, where per I was just Cal like what the fuck? Who was
0: just like presumably very confused for the whole thing, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> wandering around the desert in Mexico, just being like, I don't know what I'm doing.
1: <laughs> Again, like he's such a good actor, and you can just tell the whole time that he's like, I don't, like what. He just has he, he's barely acting. He looks very handsome, but uh there's not a lot.
0: Yeah, he he and oh his mum both look beautiful and have like great hair.
1: <laughs> yes. But yeah, Sting is one of the the Baron's henchmen. And there's some other very odd casting. There's one was one person who's who I can't think of now, but Sting is obviously the most, you know, hilarious at the time, I'm sure, and also in retrospect.
0: Patrick Stewart. That's who you're thinking of. Yes, that's but definitely. Fucking Patrick I'm thinking Stewart of. shows up, and towards the end, um, I noticed that he grows a mullet halfway through the film. So he's obviously <laughs> bald, as he always is, as Patrick Stewart. But they've given him mullet hair extensions to, I presume, indicate the passage of time.
1: Yes. <laughs> and uh, it's a again like very small role, and he he's like the you know one of Paul Atreides' teachers, and he just has to give little speeches about like serious weighty themes. But <laughs> watching it, you're like, how are all of these people in this movie? Sean Young is in this movie. Like,
0: I mean, people wanted to be in Dune. People wanted to. Yeah. I mean, I assume Patrick Stewart just wanted to be like in a big film. But like, I was actually trying to find out why Sting was in this film. And I couldn't. I mean, I didn't look super deeply, but I couldn't find out why Sting is in the film because he's such a strange piece of casting.
1: <laughs> I mean, I obviously have no idea, but I feel like he must be a huge Dune yeah. fan. I assume
0: he's a huge Dune fan. What I did find was a very funny just story from Patrick Stewart, which like Patrick Stewart told at some sci-fi convention where he was like, "When I was filming this movie, I literally didn't know who Sting was <laughs> 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 because like he doesn't he he has absolutely no engagement with pop music at all, and he didn't understand why Sting was famous." And like he obviously wasn't like rude to him, but he was just like completely confused by the whole endeavor and was just like, who is this man? What is happening? And when he said he was in the police, Patrick Stewart said he thought he meant like he was in a police band and he didn't understand why a police band would be so popular. And it's like, wow, if that is true and you're not just exaggerating yourself for effect, kudos.
1: <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I feel like we should say a bit more about the production design. Yeah. And the visual elements, because they really are the only notable thing about this movie. Yeah. And then music as well, which I think is kind of the most successful element.
0: I mean, the music is beautifully dated. It's, oh, the yeah. Mu- the music's by Toto. It's kind of weird, right? Because like watching this movie, I'm like, oh, I love I love the way this looks. I love like all of the weird spaceships. And then I can't remember it comes close to a decade after the first Star Wars film, right? It's like, you know, it's many years after they started production on the first Star Wars film. And the first Star Wars film does have better special effects and was cheaper than this, which kind of just goes to show. But it really does make me, once again, feel nostalgic for the era of painted matte backdrops, which this film really enjoys. And they do have a lot of fun with the production design, uh, which was by a man named Anthony Masters. But in particular... I love the costumes which are by Bob Ringwood who I adore. Um, He So like the, the costumes in this they're very theatrical there's very kind of distinct looks between the different groups so like when you see like the Atreides kind of ballroom scene earlier in the film there's all this kind of like European like historical ball guys and all these kind of uniforms and stuff and then you've got these kind of kinky like super villain sci-fi stuff going on for the harkonnens and also the still suits which is kind of the famous costume from the novels which is kind of meant to be this bodysuit that's like full of water and stuff uh which they wear in the desert and like it's very absurd that they are black which means that you'll be boiling alive in the desert heat but um yeah they look gorgeous and like bob ringwood did this long string of like amazingly well-designed blockbusters? He did the first three Batman movies in the eighties and nineties, which are gorgeously distinctive. He did Demolition Man, which is very fun, Alien Resurrection, um, Star Trek Nemesis. So those are all films which have like a very intentionally campy aesthetic. And although kind of people are very excited about Denis Villeneuve making a more serious Dune, and like the imagery we've seen the trailers certainly does look cool and very like serious and thoughtful i do feel like this kind of colorful like sexy campy aesthetic is something that's like very much missing from modern blockbuster cinema
1: (laughs) i agree in general i would not call this film specifically particularly campy
0: (laughs) no it's not the the visual the film itself is absolutely not campy at all but like you know the the visual design which is like so kind of vibrant, you know?
1: Vibrant, I think, is probably a more accurate word, yes. I mean, this is the general problem with current blockbuster cinema, which is that there are no colors in anything. And that manifests differently. Like, the Marvel movies are just boring and gray and, like, bad. (laughs) They just are visually ugly. Whereas Villeneuve, I think, is a very, very talented director, but, like, his aesthetic tends to be quite monochromatic. Even Blade Runner Twenty Forty Nine, which is probably the most uh colorful of his movies, it's really only a few scenes where the color really pops and the rest of the film it doesn't have as much of the orange and purple as the scenes that I think people remember. But like Arrival, which is the movie I like a lot, is pretty much like grey.
0: <laughs> you know, like that's And I you mean know. The, the the images we've seen from the New Dude movie are extremely grey. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think that's what he does. Um, I've seen all of his movies, I think, and I like them to varying degrees. Some of them I do not like at all. But, like, he's, again, very visually talented, but not, lot of popping colors in those movies. Whereas, obviously, the Vogue in the mid-20th century was not that at all. I mean, it just wasn't. Like, Technicolor was in in the mid-century, and then even in the 80s, like, these blockbusters were really poppy.
0: I mean, honestly, when like you look back at what Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune would have been like, like that film would have been a complete disaster. Like they had all these absolutely geniuses working on it, and like the imagery and all of the kind of production artwork is gorgeous. But like even if they had managed to cut it up into like you know six normal length like, movies, it still would have been terrible because it was like very psychedelic, and I don't really feel like a very weird art filmmaker who's making a psychedelic 1960s film is going to make an emotionally engaging fantasy drama like for something like this you need you need like a shakespearean right like you need someone who's really going to engage with the complexity of like all of the factions cuz this is very much kind of in the game of thrones zone you know it's soft sci-fi it's not heavily embedded in like technical stuff it's all to do with like, oh, you really have to care that like some dynasty is gonna conquer some other dynasty over there, like drug trade, <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm also sure I mean, I have not read Dune, but I'm sure that if I read that now, I would be like all the politics of this seem bad. Gender politics I mean other politics yeah. just seems unfortunate. I'm very curious about
0: the gender politics. There's already like, you know, we'll discuss this when we watch the new Dune, but there's already definitely a lot of kind of criticism of the fact that like the new movie has cast very diversely, but has not kind of acknowledged the Middle Eastern roots of the of the story or cast any Middle Eastern actors in like anything re- approaching a major role, which is obviously true of like every, every American blockbuster, but like that seems like a mistake, but there's no way of knowing yet what they've done with the kind of all-female Bene Gesserit situation. It's certainly a question.
1: <laughs> yeah, this it's just the kind of like really long and elaborate fantasy storytelling from like the mid, mid to late 20th century. Not that it's gone now, but there's this particular kind of thing that was in vogue at that time that I do not feel has aged well. And I think it's really hard to adapt as David Lynch discovered, because it's not, I don't mean to be like rude to people who love Dune, but it's just like so kind of opaque and like in really involved. And if you actually try to pull out the narrative threads, it doesn't really make sense or necessarily that good. Like I read tons of horrible fantasy books and when I was, you know, in middle school and high school, I'm casting no stones here, but like it doesn't always work. And I think, a lot of that comes through in this movie, where you just get the sense of like the film's just like like the arms are flailing wildly, like attempting to convey the story, and it like just doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, they literally like they are trying to make the film make more sense by have people having people sort of narrate what's happening in their internal monologue and through like psychic messages and I'm like at no point should anyone in any film be be narrating what's happening in their internal monologue
1: (laughs) I mean it literally is like a Terrence Malick film like that is what happens in Terrence Malick movies where there's no plot and it's just all about like what's happening in your spirit and whatever (laughs) and I was like that's not what should be happening in a movie like this (laughs) that's not helping me at all it's like
0: who decided that David Lynch should be directing an action scene
1: yeah
0: but yeah just to wrap this up I was just looking at the Wikipedia page for the new Dune as we were kind of talking about how they're gonna figure out what to do with genders and uh the film I now recall is co-written by John Spates the screenwriter behind Passengers (laughs) the most feminist sci-fi epic of our era passengers so it's co-written by Denis Villeneuve who I do not trust as a mastermind I trust him as a director in some instances but I do not trust him as an ideas man but it's him John Spates and Eric Roth who wrote A Star is Born and Forrest Gump he's
1: I he's written like He's like a legendary yeah. Hollywood screenwriter. He is, He's he written is, like a zillion things. He is an
0: iconic screenwriter. Yeah. So like he, between the three of those is the man who will be holding this, this one up.
1: <laughs> I would love to know the order in which those people touched that screenplay. <laughs> because it seems to me like Mr. Roth was probably brought in to do a polish. on something, But I do not know. Um, yeah, I mean, my take on Villeneuve, which I like, this will be the last thing I say because we're going to have a whole other episode about this movie once we've actually seen it, is that, like, his movies completely depend upon the quality of the script. I agree. That he is directing. Because he's made some great movies and some dog shit movies. And, like, I just don't think he has the ability to, like, discern whether a script is good because that's based on my, you know, viewing experience of watching his films. So, it's really a gamble with this one. I guess we'll find out in a few months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and next week we will be watching Attack the Block, which I have somehow never seen, despite meaning to for like 10 years since it came out. And you have seen well, many times. I've seen so. it. It's
0: my dad's favorite movie. So, I've now had to turn down <laughs> rewatching that with my dad many
1: times. <laughs> I, that warms my heart. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, I don't, it, it's a, like terrifying to me that it's been. 10 years since that movie came out because...
0: I mean, you'll know it's 10 years when you watch the film and realize that John Boyega is a tiny little teenage boy. You're like, oh, Um, he's
1: so young! (laughs) But I remember when it came out, being like, oh yeah, I should see that and then vaguely have been to literally since then and it's now been a decade. So um, I'm looking forward to this excuse to do so. Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners have seen that film. So that will be fun to talk about next week. If you would like to listen to our rehash of the Academy Awards ceremony that is up on our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online?
0: You can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor.
1: And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.